I prepared uh, this message while I was uh, living in fear of traffic to come over the weekend. And uh, it felt like every day for the last two weeks, um, some part of news was saying how bad traffic would be and how bad getting around would be. And uh, I live in Hyde Park, and I come into Logan Square, and my wife works uh, in uh, the loop. My son works in the loop uh, next near my wife. Of course, he doesn't get paid for the work he does. We pay for the work he does. Uh, I don't know how that works. But, uh, uh, and, and, and so coming in and out of this sort of section of the loop, I'm supposed to pick them up. I don't, I don't drop them off because they get up too early. Um, but, uh, but I picked them up, and there was this thing about Friday, and there's this thing about tomorrow. And, and as I was thinking about um, the traffic to come, I was preparing this message and, and, um, and how Lakeshore Drive would be cut off, and so I'd have to go back to the Kennedy to come all the way back to the lake. And, um, and this, in this preparation this morning uh, and before this morning um, really anchored me in something that I want to just kind of give to you and, and maybe um, you can borrow from this. This, this preparation and, and, and my, my speaking today uh, is an effort for me to find a route, to find um, a map, to offer a route and a map toward uh, joy. And I'm taking uh, and I'm serving as a break uh, for the, the sermon series that we're in right now, but I think it relates, even though it's not pl- a planned relationship, uh, between what we're talking about uh, in this newness of identity, this new you, this new me. And, and I think there is a place for us to think about joy when we think about what it is God is doing. And so part of my prayer for you and for us is that we will find a way uh, to uh, get to joy, find a way through the congestion of our lives to be filled with joy. I want you to read with me um, from Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. Some of you have Bibles, and because your Bible is probably not as good as mine, um, that means you don't share the version I share. Uh, I want you to read uh, from the screen. And so if you have your Bible, you're better than uh, three-quarters of the folks in this church because y'all don't bring y'all Bible to church. Uh, because we have the screen. And so uh, I'm glad you brought your Bible, and I want you to open it anyway. I just don't want you to read from it unless you have the English Standard Version, okay? If you have the English Standard Version, look in your lap. If you don't, look up, and let's read this together. Now, when I say read together, uh, I mean we're going to read together. Uh, So uh, lift your voice. Use, Use the best voice you have Uh, to hear God's word for you, okay? Uh, If you need to clear your throat, go ahead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Luke is recording uh, Jesus and what Jesus is saying here. 
The disciples are there, and uh, this is one of the what we call post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And the Lord is speaking to his disciples in this text. He, he takes them on a journey, and then he ascends into the sky while they watch and worship. And I want to say to you this morning that the scene in this scripture is a scene that culminates in joy. That what Jesus does and what the disciples do together give us a way of seeing joy, give us a map on the road uh, to joy. And as I said a moment ago, while we pause from uh, the sermon series, I want you to consider what it means for you as you become completely new because of the work of Christ, what it means for you to pull the word joy close to you. What it means for you and for me and for us as a church to turn joy over in our souls. So imagine these disciples with Jesus. They, they have spent time with the Lord um, right before verse 44. They have had breakfast of broiled fish with Jesus and they are there off near the water. The Lord has appeared to them before. He's walked through walls. The Lord has appeared to couples or pairs of people and small groups of people, as Paul records. And he comes to this group once again. And as he comes to them after uh, his breakfast, uh, he begins to give them a brief recap of their time together, of their life together. Uh, The Scripture says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. Now, there are two parts to my message today, and and these these words that I've just read uh, lean into the first part. The first part of my message has to do with this language of being witnesses. Say the word witnesses. Now, if you've been around a new community, you may have heard us talk about what what it means to be a witness or what it means to be a part of a witnessing community. Here in this uh, passage, Jesus affirms his followers' identity. He says, you are my witnesses. They have been disciples, they have been his students, they have been called his friends, they have been his servants, and here he says to them that you are my witnesses. And what he's doing is he's labeling them, he's giving them an identity, confirming an identity. And when he does it, he explains what he means when he says, number one, you read our scriptures, number two, you watched my suffering, and number three, you 
experienced forgiveness. And if there are things that witnesses do, they are here when Jesus says it. Witnesses encounter the truth of God's word. Witnesses experience the suffering that comes with following Christ. And witnesses repent and are forgiven of their sins. You are my witnesses. Jesus recalls their experience together. He rehearses the stories of their communal life, of their life together, and he sends their minds over conversations and topics and moments that they have shared. He does this in quick fashion using the phrase, while I was with you. He says to them, you have read the law of Moses. You know the law. You know the prophets. You know the Psalms. You have uh, known of my sufferings. You have known what it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise. You have known that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. His disciples have personal experience with the word of God, with the suffering of God, and with the love of God, God's truth, God's pain, God's heart. They know his word. When, when Jesus mentions Moses, when he mentions the law, when he mentions the prophets and the Psalms, they feel that certainty of those dangerous words welling up in them again. They know in their hearts what it means to acquaint with God's truth and God's pain and God's heart. And I, I can imagine that a Peter who is in this group uh, thinks through that crazy moment when he and James and John are on the side of the mountain, up up on top of the mountain rather, with Jesus and Elijah and Moses appear. You have known the law of Moses. I can imagine Peter remembering that crazy statement, that silly statement when he says, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three churches. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. I can imagine when Jesus says, you have known of the prophets, that somebody in that number of disciples thinks back to that fiery-eyed prophet of prophets, John the Baptist, who who stands in the desert and, and calls people to be baptized and to repent and be forgiven. I can imagine that when Jesus mentions the Psalms, that somebody in the disciples' number thinks back to that dreary day not too far far past when Jesus stretches his hands on the cross and and, and through thirsty lips says the words from that royal psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says, you know the psalms, you know the prophets, you know the law. He looks at his witnesses and he says to them, everything written about me must be fulfilled. Now, now there is um, 
quite a lot that has been written about Jesus when he says this, and, and he knows it. And, 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 and there is not just beauty written about Jesus. There is ugliness written about Jesus. There is not only greatness written about him, but there is humility written about him. And his disciples are listening, and, and these people who are listening to him are going back over their experiences. They're burping up breakfast. They're thinking about Jesus and, and thinking about what he saying, thinking about all of the things that have been written of him, and he is saying, you are my witnesses. If anyone gets the essence of what I am about, if anyone gets the good news that I embody, it is you. If anyone is suited to deal with the suffering that is to come, it is is you. If anyone is prepared to handle the struggle and the worry and the questions that come, you are. And new community, my question for us is, is this true of us? Can we claim the language of being Christ's witnesses? Can we, who are called and into this community called the church of God, the church of our Lord, can we own these words of Jesus? Have we worked in our souls the word of God? Have you And have we experienced uh, that old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame? Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to us, you are my witnesses. You you have come to me to be witnesses. forgiven of your sins and then the Bible says he opens his mind he opens uh, uh, their minds to understand the scriptures and this is the part of the passage where I start to hate the disciples a little bit and maybe this is just me I start to get a little envious of them um, because, because Luke says that Jesus opens their minds to understand. Can you imagine that for a minute? Can you, can you imagine those words sitting on your hands? Open your hands and think about Jesus opening your mind to understand the word. I don't like the disciples when I read this because, because, because there's a movement, there's a, there's a movement in me of jealousy. I, 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 you know, I have this, this, um, this bitterness for Thomas and for Nathaniel and for Matthew and for John. And, and I, and I think, um, I think that, that if, if there is a place I would rather be, I love to trade places with them when Jesus opens their mind to understand. Am I by myself? Does that relate to you? Would you? You don't want to understand. Some of you do, right? He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. I imagine he's not answering all their questions. But I wonder what questions he does answer. 
I wonder what issues he does address for them. And, and, and whatever they are, uh, that's one of the ways I lean into this passage. Because, and I, some, I know some of you do too, you have your questions for Jesus. You, you would love to cook him a meal, even if you can't cook. Uh, his body is glorified, right? We don't even know how he's digesting this broiled fish. So, you know, maybe it was raw, maybe it was broiled, maybe it was baked. Who knows? You know, Luke might have got the details a little bit off. So, so Jesus here, imagine, you cooked him a catfish filet. Maybe it's blackened, maybe it's fried. And, and he is sitting at your table. And he's answering your questions. He's opening your mind to understand the scriptures. And maybe, maybe this is just a prayer for some of us this week to pray. God, can you do for me what you did for them? God, can you open for me what you opened for them? I am envious and I'm glad to admit it. I am jealous and I'm happy to admit it that I want to understand something. You wrote your prayer request out, and you've been writing the same request for weeks. Some of you didn't even write it because you've been writing it for weeks. Maybe your prayers can be the questions that you said, Jesus, can you, can you help me understand why I'm still praying about the same thing? He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. He says, you have been forgiven. You know the power of being free from sin. You have repented and you know the strength of bearing yourself honestly in the presence of God. You have seen real suffering. You are my witnesses. He repeats again for them this truth and he gives it to us today that we are his. That we are his witnesses. And one of the questions I want to give to you for you who like questions, uh, and this is a prayerful question, is, and, and, and maybe you can take this home with you, is how you recall, uh, how you go back in your mind to what you have seen with, uh, Jesus do in your life. How do you recall what it is you have witnessed Jesus do in your life? Or, or where uh, has Jesus opened your mind to understand the truths of scripture and I think that these can be uh, a daily questions for you where you can ask God where where we can pray for God to help us remember like he does with these disciples what it is Jesus has done the first part of my message is this language of being his witnesses being people being a church who can encounter the truth of God's word who can experience the suffering of Christ who can who can who can who can be Christ's witnesses the second part of my message is in the uh, next part of the passage Jesus says and behold i am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed 
with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus gives them an identity in the first part of this passage. In the second part, he gives them a promise. He gives them uh, the promise that the Father has given. He says that he will send the Father's promise. Now, when he says that, this is a cue that Jesus is about to leave. He has said this to his disciples before. And when he says that he will uh, depart and send the promise, this group is uh, clear on what that means. That means that Jesus, in some way, is about to leave. At my house, uh, in the mornings, we have cues Uh, The cues in the morning are, um, uh, as I said, my wife uh, gets up before me. She gets up before God, actually, and uh, she is up, and my son uh, has learned how to get up with his mother. Uh, They leave together, and so uh, when he hears his mother, the boy gets up. Uh, and expects to be readied as well. And so uh, one of the cues that the morning is beginning is for my son to run uh, over to me uh, and to find my back because I don't turn to people that early in the morning. It's, it's, uh, it's right before 7, and he's pattering running, and he's singing, Bye, Daddy. And he's tapping on my back, saying, Bye, Daddy. And uh, I turn over, and I you know, acknowledge him. Um, it takes a minute for me uh, to find words uh, at 6.45 in the morning. Uh, I don't talk to people before 9.30. I'm not responsible for what I say or don't say. So he's, he's saying, and he, he's at a stage where he repeats himself until you at least repeat what he's saying. And it is mildly frustrating. Um, but he, uh, he, bye, daddy. And I say, bye, son. And he says, bye, daddy. And I say, bye, son. And he leans up and he kisses me and he says, see you later. And I say, see you later. And I kiss him. And he says, bye, daddy. And I say, <laughs> I say, have a good day. He says, have a good day. And I'm waking up, you know, I'm saying, okay, be good. And I say, be good. That's it. That's the good is the end. And um, he says, be good. And at this point, my wife, because we've gotten actually into a conversation, is at the door saying, come on, Bryce. We have to catch the bus. And because he loves the bus more than he loves his father, he runs um, and he goes. And, and his running is my cue um, to get up. It's, this is the beginning of my day uh, so that I can sort of trudge through uh, the hours and try to find out why people wake up so early in the morning. It's a cue. This is a cue in my morning that my wife and my son are leaving and that my work is starting. And Jesus gives his disciples this cue that he is about to leave. And and, and he says to them, I am leaving, sending 
the promised one. We have been told throughout the Gospels that he will depart and that the promised one will enable greater ministries. And and, and what I want to do is walk through a few things in the second part of this passage. Then we'll celebrate communion. We'll go home or somewhere and then we'll come back for nefarious tonight. The first thing uh, is that Jesus offers his disciples a future. He says uh, to them that they have a future where they are in the powerful, promised presence of God. Now, I said to you as I opened that I wanted you to be thinking about a route toward joy. And I don't want you to separate from that but because the, this, this, this issue becomes important as you think about these points uh, in getting to joy. Jesus offers his disciples a future, a life in the promised presence of God. Their, their tomorrows are clothed with God's presence. Now, now be thinking uh, as I talk what that means for you, uh, what it means for uh, your later, your tomorrow, to be clothed in God's presence. Jesus has called them witnesses, and that is a kind of identity or baptismal identity. He brings them into his community. He brings them in, calls them uh, his own witnesses. He, he, he tells them that they are forgiven, that they are cleansed, that they are changed, that they are his witnesses. And, and what we see is that their identities as witnesses can only be fulfilled with the giving and getting of God's Holy Spirit. They are his witnesses, but he must send God's promise. In other words, their being, who Jesus has called them to be, is based upon the gift uh, given or sent from the Father. God keeping his promise would enable them to be who they were called to be. Jesus says to them, don't leave the city until, as the NIV translates, you are clothed with power. Some of you, when you come uh, forward uh, for, for prayer uh, at the end of service, you, you need, you need to, to ask some of our prayer ministry to pray for you to change clothes, that you might be clothed with power. Some of you, when you get ready to come for communion and you're in line and you're singing or you're meditating or you're quiet and when you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, you need to ask God to change your clothes, to clothe you with power, to give you a future that is filled with the powerful, promised presence of God. When you think about your future, when you think about your tomorrows, do you, do you see a future that is more filled with God uh, or more filled with you? Think about that for a minute. When you think about your life and the life you're living, is your life a life filled with more of what you want, more of what you need, more of what you desire, more of what your plans are, or is your future filled with God's presence?
And sometimes there's a meeting together of your desires and God's presence. But sometimes there's not. Jesus offers his disciples a future in God's presence. Number two, I have four. Jesus takes them on a journey. He lifts his hands and he blesses them. Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem, according uh, to John 11. And Jesus had lodged there, um, as Matthew says. And so these disciples and Jesus were not strangers to Bethany. Bethany was familiar to them. And Jesus goes there uh, with this group uh, as he uh, is preparing to leave. He, He does something in this passage that I love. The Bible says that he lifts up his hands the Bible says that he blesses them. And, uh, and a few of you are concerned about things in your life and you've been saying prayers and, and I want to give you a motion, a gesture. I, I want to suggest to you, uh, and as important as words and prayers are, that gestures are just as important. Jesus lifts up his hands and I want to commend that to you. For you uh, who are thinking about your neighbor or your neighborhood, to learn how uh, to do what I'm doing with my hands. For some of you, you feel really weird about this. Uh, and so I'm going to take a moment and try to work it into you. Jesus, Jesus lifts his hands. He doesn't lay his hands. He has done that. He has touched his disciples. He, he, he here just lifts them. And, and, and for you, uh, I want to say um, that there are things you need to continue to pray about, but you may, you may find this motion just as powerful. What is Jesus doing when he lifts his hands? The Bible uh, in Leviticus and Numbers in Exodus uh, gives us this gesture. It is a high priestly gesture. Aaron does it. As high priest, he lifts his hands uh, in Leviticus 9. Uh, We are told that Moses does it in Numbers 20. And when Moses lifts his hands, he is lifting his hands. And the scripture says, as long as his hands are lifted, Israel, who is in battle at the time, wins victory. And, and, And the Lord here in Luke 24 is drawing upon this rich and full history that his listeners will appreciate. They know the scriptures as Jesus has already said. You know the law of Moses. You know the prophets. You know the Psalms. So so they are acquainted with Aaron in Leviticus and and Moses in Numbers. They know what it means uh, for the high priest to do this. They know that uplifted hands somehow has meant Israel's victory. And Jesus gestures when he lifts his hands in Bethany, this same victory, this same endurance, this same strength. But, but he doesn't have to go 
too far back in their history to Aaron or to Moses. He only has to go back a few days, a couple of weeks, because he himself, as high priest, has just finished lifting his hands over the entire world. He has just finished lifting his hands to ensure the victory, the endurance, the strength of God's people. Oh, you're not happy about that. There's a little man in me that, that when, I, when I think about that, the man is jumping and I'm, I'm holding him in, in, my, in, my, in my, I'm holding him in me right now because the little man is saying things happen when Jesus lifts up his hands. That, 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 when, that when Jesus does this, he is doing something over things like this. Death. When Jesus extends his hands, he extends his hands over bodies of little girls that are trafficked, and he ensures victory and strength and endurance. Oh, it's too hot for you to say, man. <laughs> preach, Michael. You preach, boy. Preach. <laughs> Jesus lifts his hands. Do that, do that, just do this, just do this. Oh, don't be disobedient, just, yes, 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 yes. Just do that, right? I wonder, I wonder. Oh, you're not tired yet, right? Come on, oh. I didn't ask you to stand, I just said lift your hand. Now, now while your hands are lifted and you are not Jesus, no matter what your friends tell you, you're, you're not Jesus. But I wonder if your body right now can remember what it means for Jesus to lift his hands over you. What would it mean for Jesus to give you strength and endurance and victory? See, your body right now is doing what your soul can't always do. It is becoming a magnet for strength. Your body is becoming a magnet for endurance. Your body is becoming a magnet for victory. So, so when you do this, when you go home and you step over your door, and you know with those roommates who you think are crazy, they probably are, you just walk over, you just walk over the door, you do this, and you're done, right? This is victory. This is strength. This is endurance. Put your hands down. You go to work later today. You go to work tomorrow. And you just walk in the, you just walk in the parking lot. You lock your door. And you just. You have that conversation, right? With, with that friend who you don't know what to say to. And before they come to the coffee shop, before they get to the table, you have your cappuccino in front of you. And you just. You had to make a big you just. <laughs> it is a physical reminder of what you can't always say. That Jesus is doing this. Over your marriage. I don't know what this. <laughs> Have you seen that before? Now that takes on new meaning for you. Because you're not, 
you just extended victory and strength and endurance. But he doesn't just lift his hands. The Bible says he blesses them. Blessing is a very, very simple thing here. What Jesus does is he tells his disciples good things that are true about them. Jesus blesses them. He tells them good, truthful things about them. Now, um, this is a stretch for some of us to do because there's a lot more to say about some of us than good things. Jesus can tell a whole lot of truths about these disciples. And he has all the facts on you too, right? Uh, and, and, and this passage comes along and says that Jesus, who knows all, who sees all, when it is a critical moment right prior to his departure, he entrusts the future of the church in the hands and hearts of these people. And what does he do? Does he go down the list of instructions? Does he say, you know, Peter, you still have that character thing. You know, James, you need to really pay attention. What does he do? What does he do? He says good things that are truthful about them. And I think we get the bad things. I think we necessarily hear the bad things. Thank God for conscience in the presence of the Holy Spirit that will convict us of our sins. And I don't think we will ever really flee from the truth that is bad. But sometimes I think we have trouble hearing the blessings of Jesus. The good things that are true about you. I don't want to overestimate your sense of self. But it is never right that you are not blessed. See? And and yeah, you need to hear uh, and maybe in uh, the tone of your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, your buddy, how sad you are and how bad you are. And maybe God will speak through them. But who's speaking good, truthful things? Who's the voice of Jesus doing that? Number three, number three, number three. Jesus leaves and they worship. Augustine, that African bishop from the early days of the church, says that the the disciples confirm their faith by looking at Jesus and by touching him. And Jesus here is with this crowd of disciples, this group of disciples, and their faith is being confirmed as they worship Jesus. They have seen him, they have touched him, and he departs however he does. He, he ascends into the sky, and I imagine these disciples are singing. I, I imagine them yaying. I imagine them yelling. I imagine them weeping. I imagine them calling And I think every sound is a sound of real worship. Aching and yelling, sitting, grieving. I think our worship should be this on Sundays. 
I think our worship throughout the week should sound like this. This Jesus who is loved and who leaves. This Jesus who is seen ascending and there's this mixture. There's not just celebration, right? There's this no in the crowd. There's this, wait, I'm not done with you yet. There is this, you haven't answered all my questions in this. It's all there in the worship. And, 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 and I don't want you to think that when we gather, we cannot do those things. That, that, that we are supposed to have the tears and the arms wrapped around shoulders because we're filled with confusion at what God left undone. That, that we're still struggling and suffering. That we have things to celebrate. That we have purpose and that the Spirit is coming. That the Spirit is here. That we're receiving the promise of God. And yet some of us feel so far away. The, the more we see him rise, the further we feel. And it's all in here today. He leaves. And they worship. Some of you are listening to me this morning and you feel uh, the absence of God. And there, there are at least two ways to respond to that absence, right? Sometimes that absence is exhilarating because you hear that the, the powerful, promised presence of God is coming. And so God is gone in the person of Jesus, but the Spirit is coming. And that means, that means purpose. That means, that means initiative. That means that you can get up with passion in your life and you don't have to live on your own strength. That, that the joy that you have comes from somewhere else. That is unquenchable. That is exciting, right? But on the other hand, there is this other reaction to God's absence. And the other reaction to God's absence leaves us feeling split and broken and disappointed. Because Jesus is gone. And still the disciples worship. And, and I want to say, new community, that, 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 that worship is orienting activity. That, that, that worship orients them toward God and away from themselves. That worship does not look over their lives. It looks at and through their lives to another life. That worship is the thing we do that, that looks at our lives in the context of God's life. It's, it's like if I were, were over uh, standing up and, uh, at this screen and you would see me, but you would see the screen taking me in. You would see the screen longer and larger and taller and wider than me. It is my life in the context of something bigger, something larger, something greater. Worship, when it is true, does exactly that. I am struggling. I am suffering. That is true. My life sucks, and yet my life is in the context of God's life. Number four, y'all still awake? I know sometimes that bass in my voice gets a little subtle and, you know, I talk a little slow and I sort of, you know, do that and, and you fall asleep. So wake up. If somebody's asleep, 
next to you, just nudge him and say, uh, he wants your attention. Uh, last point. Uh, they returned filled with joy. The response of people who live in community with Jesus is joy. In some ways, all that has come before their return is needed for them to have joy. They wouldn't have had joy were it not for their having seen him these many times. They wouldn't have had joy if they didn't have the chance to touch him, to press in upon him, to eat with him, to be uh, instructed by him, to be blessed by him. They needed these things in order to return with joy. Another way, though, another way of of, of speaking is that they had to uh, make joy. Say the word joy. joy. Now, now it's 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 tempting uh, to confuse the point I'm going to make, and I don't want you to misunderstand. There are some things that you cannot manufacture. There are some things like God's presence that you cannot conjure and create. God is present. You can't make God show up. God is active. You can't force God, manipulate God. You can't create God's action. God is active regardless of what you do. God is before you. God is after you. But there are some things that you can make. There are some things that you can create. The Bible says uh, that these disciples attend to the creation of joy daily. They continually come to the temple blessing God. They discipline themselves. They habituate themselves to do something over and over again. They make joy between them. They rebound from life continually in the presence of others and the result of of their rebounding in community, their result is a feeling that is more than a feeling. Their result is joy. The Bible says that they are filled with joy. That, that, that they have come through life, they have come through experience with God, they have come through seeing God leave, and they've come back with joy. Carlton, come on up. I'm going to ask you this morning uh, to, to, to pray for joy. We're going to have communion. In fact, In fact, when I start praying, if you're serving communion, you come on up. Worship team will come up at the same time and you find your stations and I'll be praying while you do that. So don't get confused. I want you to walk while I'm doing that. But I want you, church, to look at your life this morning and to pray for this filledness from God. I want you to look at and beyond your sufferings with Christ. I want you to look at and beyond them and to pray for the Holy Spirit to clothe you with power to fill you with joy. Do you need a way to pray? Breathe in. Clothe me with power. Breathe out. Fill me with joy. You can do that in a breath. Clothe me with power. Fill me with joy. Bow your heads. Let's pray that God 
not just fill us with the bread and the cup, but that God would fill us with immeasurable joy this morning. Let's pray that God would fill us. Jesus, would you lift your hands above us and bless us? Would you do for us this week what you've done in Luke 24 with your first disciples? Would you, would you lift your hands over our lives? Would you lift your hands over our lives when we can't see your feet, when we can't tell where you're going, when we don't know what you're doing? Would your hands be lifted above be us? And would you speak blessings, good things that are true in our ears throughout time? And may you find us speaking words back to you of worship. And may you take joy in what you hear from us this week. We ask these things in the strong name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All of God's people said amen.